It's Tuesday, October 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A plot to sell nuclear submarine secrets to a foreign country has been thwarted by the FBI. A Navy nuclear engineer and his wife were both charged in the attempt. In one instance, Jonathan Toby, who had top-secret clearance, conducted a dead drop where he placed an SD card with gigs of sensitive data inside a peanut butter sandwich for what he thought was an agent of a foreign country. Devlin Barrett, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for this espionage plot. Next, pharmaceutical company Merck is seeking emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 pill. If approved, it would be the first oral antiviral for COVID. Other treatments such as remdesivir and monoclonal antibody treatments both require an intravenous infusion. Riley Griffin, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more on this pill that directly targets the virus. Finally, Southwest Airlines was a mess this past weekend as it canceled over 2,000 flights. The airline blamed air traffic control, bad weather, and staffing shortages for the delays. There was speculation that many employees, including pilots, were calling out sick in response to vaccine mandates, but the company said those reports were inaccurate. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for Southwest's problems. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This nuclear reactor technology, the U.S. only shares with its closest allies like the U.K. and Australia. For an adversary country to get a hold of this would have been very dangerous for the U.S.'s qualitative and quantitative military edge. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Devlin. Thanks for having me. Got a very interesting story that uh, developed over the weekend. A Navy nuclear engineer and his wife have been charged with repeatedly trying to pass secrets about U.S. nuclear subs to a foreign country. The FBI was involved in all of this, this spy plot that this guy was trying to do. And, you know, had some uh, some interesting twists with a peanut butter sandwich and, and you know, a, a, an investigation really that was going on for about a year. So, Devlin, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? So, essentially what happens, according to the court papers, is that a foreign government, we don't know which foreign country, that's an important detail in all this, receives a package from out of the blue in which someone offers to basically sell them secrets about U.S. nuclear t- submarine technology. That is a very valuable technology for a a fairly small number of countries in the world who would be interested in building their own nuclear subs. And so what happens that really creates the first, this case really starts with a twist. And the twist is that that foreign government decides, well, we're not going to pursue this. We're going to hand this package over to the Americans. And so what starts right out of the gate is that the Americans start investigating this person by pretending to be the foreign country. And the whole time that what we now know to be Jonathan and Diana Toby, uh, the whole time that they think they're allegedly talking with a foreign spy, they're actually talking with an undercover FBI agent. And part of what this is, uh, what we see, obviously, since they were working with the FBI, we have some emails and there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on in there. And there was a lot of trust built right away with money because they were paying Mm -hmm. Jonathan. So they were confirming the packages were delivered. They were confirming, yes, we do want this information. And then they even uh, got a signal from the embassy where this country, the country that he was trying to work with too. And that's amazing too, because what that suggests, we don't know for certain, but that certainly suggests that not only did that foreign country hand over the package, it suggests that they were willing to do 
something like put a signal over their embassy for the Americans to give whoever these spies were this sort of signal that they needed to believe that this was all real. And obviously, as someone who's covered spy cases before, that's a really interesting feature of this case, that apparently a foreign government was willing to do that much to be helpful to the U.S. to catch these folks. Tell me about the money and the drops and the peanut butter sandwich, because that, that's how we was. Uh, yeah, you know, that, they, they were called dead wild. drops, I guess. And, and that, that's part. So it's a peanut butter sandwich, a Band-Aid wrapper, chewing gum package. This is how he was slipping the secrets through to them. This is part of why the FBI figured out who they were, right? Because what was happening was they arranged a series of dead drops. That's spy lingo for basically you hide something under a rock somewhere And then later on, your spy handler comes and picks it up. And that way, the people don't have to be in the same place. That's a measure of covert action, basically, in the the spy world. And so what happened was several times, the FBI says, Jonathan Toby went and conducted a dead drop, leaving data cards hidden in these strange things, including half of a peanut butter sandwich, as well as a chewing gum package, as well as, you know, a a Band-Aid wrapper. And each time, basically, the FBI was secretly monitoring and watching and could tell that it was, according to the charging papers, Jonathan Toby who left it with his wife, in some instances, acting as a lookout. What kind of secrets was he spilling? The paperwork he was sharing was apparently all about the design, function and specifications of the nuclear propulsion system for submarines. You know, obviously, this is a pretty expensive and complicated technology. It's one of the secrets that the government cares a lot about. There's actually not much of a market for this. You know, there aren't even that many countries who would try to build a nuclear-powered submarine. But obviously, that's information that the government dearly wants to protect. And that's part of the reason why this couple now faces up to life in prison if they're convicted. Some of these uh, stuff for these nuclear marine submarine reactors is uh, part of this new deal that we have with Australia, too. And I know that caused uh, some strife with France and everything. Now, this is me just saying there, could it possibly have been France? You know, they are still an ally of ours, and maybe they didn't want to run afoul of anything, so they shared that information. Right. We just don't know. I mean, France is definitely one of the countries that would at least theoretically have an interest in this kind of information. And we know that whatever country he was, he was trying to sell it to is a country where they don't speak English. So that really narrows the list down. You know, you're talking about France, Russia, China. I mean, and to be honest, that's kind of it in terms of non-English speaking countries that have a, a real interest in this stuff. Devlin Barrett, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Oscar. I mean, you have now a small molecule, a drug that can be given orally. And the results of the trial that were just announced yesterday and the day before are really quite impressive. Joining us now is Riley Griffin, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Riley. Thanks for having me. Well, Merck has sought emergency use authorization for their COVID-19 pill. A lot of people, when the news came out about this treatment, uh, they were saying, you know, it's a breakthrough. Obviously, all of the other treatments right now that we have are given intravenously when you're talking about remdesivir or monoclonal antibodies. You know, you got to go to a clinic, you got to get set up, and they have to give it to you through IV. This would be the first pill form thing, this first oral antiviral treatment, and it just makes it more easily accessible to so many more people. So, Riley, tell us a little bit about the emergency use authorization for this, and then we'll get into some background on the pill. 
So Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics have sought an EUA, that emergency use authorization, from U.S. regulators. This is something that, based on conversations I've had with Merck, could come even before Halloween. And, and that is a real win for the U.S. because we've wanted for quite some time, as you've mentioned, something that is cheap, easily distributed, accessible. And, and one important part of this, too, is that it's easier to produce. A pill like this in capsule form is quicker to get off the supply chain than an intravenous solution. So that's a a really important part of this story. This drug has been in development for years and years and years for different viral designations. And Merck ultimately found it from Ridgeback, which had licensed the compound from Emory. And countless academic institutions have worked on this drug for ages. Anthony Fauci has said that the FDA is expected to move quite fast. And the good news here is that an interim analysis of clinical trial data found that it cut the risk of hospitalization in half for patients who are at risk of developing a severe illness that may require hospitalization. Now, I might get this wrong. The drug is called molnupiravir. And it basically, you know, as soon as you get diagnosed with COVID-19, this is something that they would give you. You know, it's not necessarily a preventative, it's treatment. It attacks the virus. What kind of uh, course of treatment and how much does this cost? It's a course of treatment that you take for a couple of days. So Merck has reiterated that it expects to make 10 million treatment courses or 400 million capsules before the end of 2021. We've actually learned from the New York Times Our friends over there say that this five-day course of treatment will cost about $700 per patient, which is a third of the amount of a monoclonal antibody treatment, so to speak. So it is certainly cheaper. That's not to say it's as cheap as all kind of capsules of this class, but you're really thinking, what is the cost of hospitalization? And that is rather high. It's especially high at a time here in the U.S. where we are still seeing people unvaccinated land in the emergency room. And so no doubt these COVID-19 therapeutics are desperately needed here in the U.S. as we continue to see large unvaccinated populations persist, but also outside of the U.S. where we may not have seen equitable distribution of vaccines to date. One of the things that there was a concern of, right, there's always a concern of variants. And could the virus change enough to not really make the pill that effective that is a possibility, but thankfully what they've said is that that might not, that it shouldn't be too much of a concern, at least with this pill, based on how it works. Uh, tell us how it works, because it, it's pretty interesting it, what it does. It does attack the virus directly, introducing errors into it, so that it basically kills itself off almost. Drug resistance occurs when viruses or bacteria evolve to blunt or defeat drugs mechanism of, of attack. And viruses, they are wily things. They mutate to survive. This is a constant concern for antivirals and antibiotics. And we've already seen COVID treatments like Eli and Lily and Co's antibody therapy face issues with drug resistance. But as you said, Merck executives have told me that they're not too concerned about molnupiravir and drug resistance. There are a couple of reasons why they say that. One is that the course of treatment is short. That means there's less of an opportunity to evolve into resistant forms. But the more important reason lies in the drug's mechanism of action. 
So pioneered by these researchers at Emory University and other academic centers, molnupiravir really worked by introducing errors into the coronavirus's genetic material. What that means is that errors are replicated until the viruses are defunct. And in this case, the errors are actually induced more or less randomly throughout the viral genome. That means that the virus has fewer opportunities to develop mutant forms that will overcome those errors. So it's really about that random distribution. And that in and of itself makes resistance a really tough thing, said one Mark executive. You know, just to be clear, right, uh, vaccines are still better and work well at preventing COVID. This is for somebody that has already been, uh, who's already contracted COVID. You know, it's a treatment after the fact, but still really good. And they say that, you know, uh, when you pair it with other uh, other types of drugs, you know, there's kind of cocktails of other things to attack the virus on all sorts of sides, you know, it works even better that way too. Well, we haven't yet seen them combine molnupiravir with another drug like say, Pfizer's still evolving candidate that is also an antiviral pill. We might one day see Merck create such a cocktail. But for now, we're really looking at this specific molnupiravir compound and thinking through its efficacy and its safety. Riley Griffin, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. They tell you that they can return to your credit card and you can book to another airline. But no airlines because everybody's trying to book. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Leslie, what is going on with Southwest Airlines? They canceled more than 2,000 flights since Saturday. For them, they blamed air traffic control issues, bad weather, and staffing shortages, which we know have been a problem kind of all over the place, but I guess a, a key thing here. Leslie, start us off just how the weekend went for many people. This was a very, very complicated situation that kind of ran out of Southwest control. So what we're seeing is really Southwest went out early and, and kind of blamed the air traffic control and some weather in Florida where it does have major operations. And that kind of led to this sort of snowball effect of planes were out of position, pilots and flight attendants were out of position, and then it just kind of went from there. It, it does have a cascading effect because once that plane doesn't take off at its you know, destination, at its origin for its destination, then the next flight gets delayed, gets, could be eventually canceled, crews can time out, hit their federally mandated work limits and things like that. So that's uh, kind of what's going on, and it got up to about over 1,000 cancellations on Sunday and 800 on, on Saturday. We know there's staffing shortages because of the pandemic. We know that airlines were hit particularly hard during the pandemic as, you know, there wasn't much travel. Are they booking too many flights? That's a very good question because what Southwest is going through is they are flying more than, let's say, a Delta and United. Their network was much less disrupted by the pandemic than, let's say, you know, Delta American United, which fly a lot more international, which, as we all know, has been taken a huge hit from the pandemic of travel restrictions and, and so forth. But Southwest is, is primarily a domestic carrier, um, much like Spirit, which had a meltdown over the summer. 
but they have been flying more. Yesterday's schedule on Sunday was the most flights, about 3,600, I believe, since April 2020. So they've been trying to ramp up. This was a holiday weekend for some people. There were big sports events in Texas and lots of other things going on around the country, and then they tried to capitalize on that. And a criticism that Southwest has had both from crews who are exhausted and have complained about these grueling work schedules and from passengers that end up getting disrupted is that maybe there's, they're trying to do too much with too little. By their own admission, they have said they have had, have had trouble with staffing, restaffing, hiring people. You know, they're competing with for the, the lower paying jobs, fast food and restaurants and hotels that are also desperate for workers. So they have that issue. And if we back up to a year ago, Southwest and other airlines were begging, pleading with employees to take leaves of absence, to take outright buyouts and leave the company so that they can cut down on their labor bills and at, you know, at the worst of the pandemic when they were bleeding money and, and many of the airlines still are. But then travel demand came back and they couldn't undo it. It's kind of like getting rid of all your clothes and then you can get a new job or you have to go to a wedding and you're like, I have nothing to wear. Right, exactly. uh, or you empty your fridge and 15 family members come over and they're all hungry. So they're trying to do this about faith and they're really struggling with that. And we have this internal memo that we, we saw from the president today and it says that they've already cut back on their schedule for the fall um, around and going through you know Thanksgiving and they might do more. They might be having to cut more flights so that the passengers who show up at the airport aren't disrupted. One of the things that we saw circulating over the weekend, too, was this notion that there might have been like a pilot sick out or, you know, other people, too, just calling out sick, maybe in response to whatever the vaccine mandates that Southwest imposed. So I wanted to I know that the Southwest for them part said, you know, no, that's not a thing. But, you know, back to that vaccine mandate, what is their mandate? How many pilots have been vaccinated? Do we know any of those numbers? So Southwest, like other airlines, like American, for example, um, have recently come out to say that there's a federal mandate coming down the line. I think December 8th is the earliest it would take place for federal contractors, which airlines are a part of. They fly the mail. They fly military members. They fly cargo. Um, they have or government employees. They, they have you know, myriad government contracts. So that mandate is stricter than the OSHA rules that are supposed to come out for large companies, which allow it they could test if they don't test regularly for COVID if they don't get vaccinated. Southwest came out about a week ago, a little over, and said, we're going to comply with this mandate. Not that they have much of a choice. You know, this is the Biden government. Our hands are tied. It is known that there are some employees at Southwest, I'd say like other companies as well, that are against the vaccine mandate. The pilots union has filed a lawsuit about what they called unilateral uh, COVID policy measures. And on Friday, uh, tried to get a judge to ask the court to temporarily block uh, the implementation of this vaccine mandate and some of the other measures. So there is opposition to that. The pilots union says they're not anti-vaccine I think they do understand that the company does have to follow these federal rules, but they want a negotiation with the union to take place first. What we've heard from the union is that the sick calls, they were pretty much in line with what they've been seeing for the last few months, as well as the time that people picking up shifts and things like that, like nothing abnormal. But they haven't released the actual numbers. So there is some speculation about people calling out, but there hasn't been proof of that or right. that it's coordinated. But we what we do know and by Southwest's own admission is that they do have this staffing issue for whatever the reason and it's impacting their operation and they need to build in a cushion that they do not have right now. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.